Dear Father, may our time spent together just now restore our trust in you, our friendship with you, our knowledge of you. May we internalize this and may we reflect that intimate knowledge of you to others. Amen. Today, Haggai and Zechariah. And now we're moving on to a totally different period of time. Okay, so we're out of the Babylonian captivity. Okay, remember 586, the fall of Jerusalem, Babylonian captivity, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. 538, the Edict of Cyrus to return. And so Haggai and Zechariah are with the early people who left Babylon to come back to restore the temple, to restore Jerusalem. And so Haggai and Zechariah, these are the, the prophets that had a message during this time because the people were kind of lagging and, and not putting much effort into the rebuilding of the temple. And the other names here that you should, should associate with this period of time are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the uh, governor during this time of the Jews and Joshua was the high priest. So we'll come across these names as we go through these two books, which we'll really um, do together. Haggai and Zechariah are so complementary. So we're just going to kind of, um, I hope, you know, seamlessly go back and forth between these two books. So just to give you kind of where we're going to be going from here, the temple was dedicated a short time later. And then Esther fits in here. Esther describes the people who didn't go back to Jerusalem, the people who stayed in Persia. And then sometime later, you can see quite a while later, um, 60, 70 years or so, Ezra comes to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah, and I think a lot of the things that we'll discuss there will help us understand why things were the way they were among the Jews when Jesus finally arrives 400 years later. And then Malachi, not exactly sure uh, the exact time, but sometime after Ezra and Nehemiah, a short time later, is the prophet Malachi. Okay, so here's the message from Zechariah. Then the angel said, Almighty Lord, you have been angry with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah for 70 years now. And we've tried to talk so much about what it means when God is angry. Of course, not in the sense as, as we think of that, but they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't listen, he couldn't do any more, so he let them go into captivity. That's God's anger. How much longer will it be before you show the mercy the Lord answered the angel with comforting words. And the angel told me to proclaim what the Lord Almighty had said. I have a deep love and concern for Jerusalem, my holy city, and my temple will be restored and the city will be rebuilt. So both Zechariah and Haggai are encouraging the people. Come on, let's rebuild. And so Haggai comes on here uh, with some strong words from God. Then the Lord gave this message to the people through the prophet Haggai, my people, why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Don't you see what is happening to you? You have planted much grain, but have harvested very little. You have food to eat, but not enough to make you full. You have wine to drink, but not enough to get drunk on. You have clothing, but not enough to keep you warm. And workers cannot earn enough to live on. Can't you see why this has happened? Now go up into the hills, get lumber, and rebuild the temple. Then I will be pleased and will be worshipped as I should be. And we'll talk about why is it even important um, here that God has a temple that's rebuilt. What's he trying to accomplish? Haggai continues, if there, if, Is there anyone among you who can still remember how splendid the temple used to be? Solomon's temple. How does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. 
But now don't be discouraged, any of you. Do the work, for I am with you. My spirit remains among you. This really will be our topic during this time about the spirit. My spirit remains among you just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the oceans and the dry land too. I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will come to this temple. I will fill this place with my glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord Almighty. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. And that's Solomon's temple, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord Almighty, have spoken. Okay, so we want to talk about in what sense would this temple have a greater glory and what is this peace? Talk about that as well. Well, if we just remember here, the, the temple that was destroyed is Solomon's temple. And you remember that when King Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and burned up the sacrifices that had been offered and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Now, how is God going to top that? Okay, dazzling light of his presence filled the temple. And we just think about the temple that was later built. Did that ever happen again? And there is no record of fire coming in or the dazzling light of God's presence ever filling the temple that w was going to be built during this time. And in fact, when it was built, and we'll come to this in Ezra next week, many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of clans had seen the first temple. They'd seen Solomon's temple. This was only a 70-year period of time. And as they watched the foundation of this temple being laid, they cried and wailed. It was so inferior to the temple that they had seen, which was destroyed. And I think we've talked about this before a couple times, but I think it is such a good illustration of what really is God's glory. We associate it, I think, knee-jerk. It is brightness, it is power, it is something uh, very overwhelming in that sense. But of course, the sense in which this later temple was greater and more spectacular in glory was the one who walked in that temple, the one who said, happy are those who are humble. And you've heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and learn from me because I, and this is God talking in gentle and humble in spirit. Okay, the ultimate glory ultimate dazzling light of God's presence is the kind of person he is. We all agree he's powerful. We don't need to debate how strong God is. But what is so amazing is he's like this in character. That's what's so remarkable. That's what was revealed by the life and death of Jesus. And so you remember, well, what about Jesus did show his power. He came into the temple. This is uh, perhaps an example where he exerted that, but just read what happened. Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the stools of those who sold pigeons and said to them, it is written in the scriptures that God said, my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout for thieves. And we have to kind of put all the different accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, but those people fled in terror. And now there are no verses left out here, but we just keep reading on here in this account in Matthew. What happened? The blind and the crippled came to him in the temple and he healed them. I mean, this is right when he went in there with the whip. The chief priests and the teachers of the law became angry when they saw the wonderful things he was doing and the children 
shouting in the temple, praise to David's son. So it is just not an anger like you and I identify with. He comes in, the guilty run for their lives, and who comes to him? The blind and the crippled come to him, the children are there singing, and uh, you know, we don't, children don't run to a man who is angry and start singing to him. So this is kind of remarkable here. Uh, what happened is he cleansed the temple. So again, I think it just can't be reinforced enough. Jesus, he reflects the brightness of God's glory and is the exact likeness of God's own being. Jesus was not bright. He did not over intimidate people with power, but he reflects the brightness of God's character. And that's the amazing thing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what all of this is referring to. He is an exact rep representation of not God's facial features, but his character. And uh, the pinnacle here where Jesus says, I've shown your glory on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do. Again, what was the glory? What was the work? I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. That is God's glory. And we see this all the way through the Bible. Remember, God came down on Mount Sinai. People were terrified. Even Moses initially said, I was afraid. But then he told the people, don't be afraid. And it didn't work, right? He scared them. But 40 days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. But just a few chapters later here, Moses says, God, let me see the dazzling light of your presence. What is that dazzling light? We want the description here of something spectacular and bright. And of course, the dazzling light of God's presence is this. The Lord then passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, and who shows great love and faithfulness. That's it. That's the dazzling light of God's presence. So many examples. Elijah, which we talked about last year. Remember, he's there with the prophets of Baal around the altar. And then we have this incredible display of power. Then Yahweh's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face downward and said, Yahweh, he is God. He is God. All right? That's God's power. But notice what happened. They all fell down, they worshiped God, but you read on through the rest here of 1 Kings, there is no description of a great revival, a great movement. All the people were so impressed with this display that they all turned to God. And in fact, what happened? Jezebel, remember, started persecuting Elijah and he ran off into the desert and said, God, I think I'm the only one you have left. It didn't work. This, the, the revelation of physical power and brightness is never successful, really, in changing hearts. But we read on, and I think we do get a description of God's glory. Remember, Elijah went out to the cave, and the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. Okay, what is God saying here? You know, yes, I'm powerful. I've done all these things. I sent the fire down, but I'm not really in the wind. The wind stopped blowing and then there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the soft whisper of a voice. And when Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? How does God want to talk with us? Wind, earthquake, fire, power, intimidation. It would appear 
You know, I don't want to call you servants, I want to call you friends, that God's desired means of communication with us is by these methods, the way that Jesus talked with people. Okay, that's the glory. Now we can use Zechariah to make the same point. The messianic prophecy here, rejoice, rejoice, people of Zion, shout for joy, you people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He comes triumphant and victorious. And I think the people that welcome Jesus wish that we could leave out the rest of this verse here. But he comes humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's how God would come. The Lord says, I will remove the war chariots from Israel, even though they were asking, are you now going to establish your kingdom? Are you going to defeat the Romans? But no, I will remove the war chariots from Israel and take the horses from Jerusalem. The bows used in battle will be destroyed. Your king will make peace among the nations. He will rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And remember Haggai also mentioned this peace. And this is a, it's a big topic here. I just, one verse on this, because I think it's very significant. Peace among the nations. And we read it in Colossians. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. Okay, that's more than just what's going on in this planet. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, not just here, but both on earth and in heaven. And remember, this is where the problem began in the first place. There was war in heaven, and one-third of the angels sided with Satan. And so we need to discuss what was it about the life and death of Jesus that not only has implications for you and I, but on a universe-wide scale. So there's that aspect. Now, this ties in very well, I think, in Zechariah. And you're familiar with this description, but I want to talk about the olive trees, the oil, the lampstand, and uh, so much of Haggai and Zechariah refers to the spirit. What is the spirit here? So let's, let's think about this. The angel who had been speaking to me came again and roused me as if I had been sleeping. What do you see, he asked. A lampstand made of gold, I answered. At the top is a bowl for the oil. On the lampstand are seven lamps, each one with places for seven wicks. There are two olive trees beside the lampstand, one on each side of it. Then I asked the angel, what do these things stand for, sir? And I love it here. I wish you know, every time a prophet or someone asks a question, we get an answer. So if God ever comes to you, please ask for lots of clarification because it seems like answers usually come. And I just wish so many times the disciples would ask more questions and they just didn't. But anyway, Zechariah fortunately says, what do these things stand for, sir? Don't you know, he asked. No, I don't, sir, he replied. The angel told me to give Zerubbabel this message from the Lord. You will succeed not by military might or by your own strength, but by my spirit. And remember, the success here they're trying to have is to rebuild the temple. What does that mean? Well, obstacles as great as mountains will disappear before you. You will rebuild the temple. And as you put the last stone in place, the people will shout, beautiful, beautiful. Another message came to me from the Lord. He said, Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of the temple and he will finish the building. When this happens, my people will know that it is I who sent you to them. They are disappointed because so little progress is being made, but they will see Zerubbabel continuing to build the temple and they will be glad. So if this is at all helpful here, we have this, these two olive trees and we'll read about these tubes that have the olive oil uh, connected to the bowls, which fill the lampstand. 
Then I asked him, what do these two olive trees on either side of the lampstand mean? Okay, good for you. And what is the meaning of the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes from which the olive oil pours? And he asked me, don't you know? No, I don't, sir. Then he said, these are the two men whom God has chosen and anointed to serve him, the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, who were the two men during this time? It was Joshua and Zerubbabel. So again, Zerubbabel, the governor, civil leadership and administration, Joshua was the priest, the religious leadership. So the point here is these two men, symbolized by the olive trees, they're the way that they would be successful in restoring the temple would be not through might, but through my spirit. So this is the question. And I think just in another version here in the Message Bible, maybe adds just a little bit of flavor to, to this. Uh, going back to the vision, the messenger angel said, the seven lamps are the eyes of God probing the dark corners of the world like searchlights. That's interesting. And the two olive trees on either side of the lampstand, I asked. What's the meaning of them? And while you're at it, the two branches of the olive trees that feed oil to the lamps. I don't know if you'd really talk to an angel that way, but anyway, what do they mean? And he said, you haven't figured that out. I said, no, sir. And he said, these are the two who stand beside the master of the whole earth and supply golden lamp oil worldwide. Now, what do we associate with oil usually in the Bible? What's that a symbol of? Holy Spirit, right? So I think here it, it fits that here we have this oil going from the olive trees to the lampstand, and then not by might, not by military strength, but by my spirit. Other places we read about this lampstand in Revelation, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It is the church. Wouldn't that make sense? They're restoring the temple to be a light to the world. What Jesus talked about, you are like a light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. There's so many other verses we could add along with this. That's what the Jewish nation was supposed to be all about. Great light to the world to bring everyone into a true knowledge of God. So success again, it's not by force, by strength, but by my spirit. And so what we need to talk about here a little bit is what is the spirit? You know, we're familiar with these phrases here. Then Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. This expression is used several times. And um, just as your gut knee-jerk thing, when someone says, um, we need to be filled with the Spirit, uh, what do we usually associate that with, filled with the Spirit? Power, miracles, speaking in tongues. Um, well, what happened at Pentecost, right? So. Um, but, but I think these are the things we usually mean when we say to be filled with the Spirit. But let's just talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit. What does that really mean? Who would be the best example of a person in the Bible filled with the Spirit? Jesus, right? I mean, who, who would be more filled with the Spirit? And it's even used in those words. This is Isaiah. The Lord says, here is my servant. This is referring to Jesus, whom I strengthen the one I have chosen, with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit. Okay, do we want to see what it looks like when someone is filled with the spirit? Here's our, our best example, Jesus. And he will bring justice to every nation. Now, how does one act who is filled with the spirit? He will not shout. This is not skipping verses. This is just continuing on. 
He will not shout or raise his voice or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed. Do we think of someone filled with the Spirit, not even breaking a bent reed, nor put out a flickering lamp? He will bring lasting justice to all. He will not lose hope or courage. He will establish justice on the earth. Distant lands eagerly wait for his teaching. Okay, that's one filled with the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and the last one here, self-control. Okay, so to be full of the Spirit is really the opposite of an out-of-control experience. It is to be ultimately in self-control, which I think we see exhibited in the life of Jesus. And there's another one here in, in uh, 2 Timothy. For the Spirit that God has given us does not make us timid. Okay, this is not weakness. Instead, His Spirit fills us with power. Okay, what is that power? Love and, again, self-control. That is to be full of the Spirit. And I know I've used this before, but it's just my favorite example here of power, where Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. Okay, why do we have that state of complete power? He knew that he was come from God and was going to God. And so, again, our mind goes on, Jesus, full of all power, what is he going to do? And what he does, he rose from the table, took off his outer garment and tied a towel around his waist, and he washed the feet of his disciples in recognition of complete power. It does take great power to forgive, to kneel down and wash dirty feet. Um, it is not the way we normally think of power, but that is ultimately God's power, not threats, intimidation, or coercion. Well, Jesus described very clearly what it is, and in so many different places, what is the primary function of the Holy Spirit. And he said, the helper will come, the Spirit what does he do? He reveals the truth about God. Okay, what truth about God? It would be the truth about the kind of person he is. And just so we don't miss it here, when the Spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. What truth? The truth about God. He will give me glory because he will take what I say and tell it to you. Okay, so the Bible as we read it, is not just like reading a historical account of something. It is with the Holy Spirit leading us into a very, very uh, vivid and real impression of the life, the teachings of Jesus. That truth becomes internalized. And again, different place in John. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit. What's his function? Who reveals the truth about God? That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And in John 4, but a time is coming and it is already here. Even now the true worshipers are being led by the Spirit to worship the Father according to the truth. These are the ones the Father is seeking to worship Him. God is Spirit and those who worship God must be led by the Spirit to worship Him according to the truth. Okay, it is so redundant here in the New Testament. I'll just put in one more. I've not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers and ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you the Spirit, okay, what will he do, who will make you wise and reveal God to you so that you will know him. Again, the words to know. Eternal life is to know God. That's what the Spirit does. So as Jesus, remember he had this incredible conversation with Nicodemus and he described to Nicodemus how the Holy Spirit works on a person, on each one of us in our daily lives. 
And he described it this way, a person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the spirit. And as we've just described what the spirit does, he brings the truth to us very specifically about the kind of person God is. So what would it mean to be born out of that? Well, it would be to have a, a Saul to Paul experience, wouldn't it? Our picture of God changes. We're reborn in that sense. Do not be surprised because I tell you that you must all be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. This is how the Holy Spirit works. And I like here that the description is not uh, God's methods are never to force or coerce. His methods are, again, the soft, still voice. That's the way God's Spirit works. It's like that with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus uh, just didn't get it. And all he could say was, how can this be? Okay, but I think he got it after the cross, for sure, because he was there. So that's how the Holy Spirit works. Now, related to this very much, then, is a very, very hard um, understanding. And that is, what is the sin of the Holy Spirit? It's described in very fearful terms. But now maybe... Uh, we can understand how this works. So we have this long passage here in Matthew. Then some people brought to Jesus a man who was blind and could not talk because he had a demon. Jesus healed the man so that he was able to talk and see. The crowds were all amazed at what Jesus had done. Could he be the son of David, they asked. When the Pharisees heard this, they replied, he drives out demons only because their ruler, Beelzebul, gives him power to do so. Isn't that incredible? Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he said to them, any country that divides itself into groups which fight each other will not last very long. And any town or family that divides itself into groups which fight against each other will fall apart. So if one group is fighting another in Satan's kingdom, this means that it is already divided into groups and will soon fall apart. You say that I drive out demons because Beelzebul gives me the power to do so. Well then, who gives your followers the power to drive them out? What your own followers do proves that you are wrong. No, it is not Beelzebul, but God's Spirit who gives me the power to drive out demons, which proves that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not for me is really against me. Anyone who does not help me gather is really scattering. For this reason, I tell you, People can be forgiven any sin and any evil thing they say, but whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who says something against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but whoever says something against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven now or ever. And I remember this uh, always bothering me very much as a child and even mentally thinking, don't have a bad thought against the Holy Spirit because um, I know... Um, you know, and we just imagine the Trinity in heaven and, and someone is cursing the Father and cursing the Son, but then when he curses the Holy Spirit, they say, what, did you hear that? Did he just curse the Holy Spirit? Um, what does this really mean? You know, the thief on the cross, remember he was cursing Jesus for a period of time. And then he was moved by what he saw and he, well, we know what happened between uh, the thief on the cross and Jesus. What would happen if he would have cursed the Holy Spirit in that moment. What is being described here? Well, Jesus goes on. To have good fruit, you must have a healthy tree. If you have poor, a poor tree, you will have bad fruit. A tree is known by the kind of fruit it bears. 
You snakes, how can you say good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good person brings good things out of a treasure of good things. A bad person brings bad things out of a treasure of bad things. So can I just ask, what do you think, based on what we've described, what the Holy Spirit does, what would be the sin, and maybe even in the context of this story, um, what is the sin of the Holy Spirit, that it is so bad that it, God will not forgive it? Not knowing God? And would in the, in the context of what was going on here, who did Jesus come to? He came to his people who didn't have uh, any superficial knowledge. Remember, they knew their Bibles forward and backward. And they were doing all of the right things externally, all the laws. They were keeping down to the, you know, just uh, the tithing and the church going and the Sabbath keeping. Everything was perfect down to a letter. But yet when God shows up, they said, you have a demon. You are from the devil. And so I think if we say that the Holy Spirit is ultimately to bring us a true knowledge of God, knowing God, intimacy with God, with the true God, then I think the sin of the Holy Spirit is when we have things so backward that we see the true God and we say, that's Satan. And that's really what was happening in this story, wasn't it? They were looking at the true God and seeing his actions and they said, you are of the devil. And so it is not an arbitrary thing, not at all. But when our picture of God is so twisted that we could see the true God and actually believe that that is Satan, then it shows we are settled into a total lie. And it's not that God can't forgive. We showed example after example last time where God would forgive rebels. It's not an arbitrary thing. It's just what else can God do? when he has poured out truth about his character again and again and again, and it's rejected and hardened to the point where they're standing face to face with the greatest revelation of who God is, and they would say, you are of the devil. That's the sin of the Holy Spirit. It's a complete rejection of a true knowledge of God. It's disliking that God is as Jesus revealed him to be. So again, like you said, this is eternal life to know you. If that's eternal life, What's eternal death? Okay, it is not, it's to not know or it's to be settled into such a picture of God that is the opposite of Jesus that um, we see that as to be the true God. And so again, if we come back to this and what I want to talk with about here in the last few minutes is again, further applications of uh, this vision that Zechariah had. We talk about, this is very much related here to the Holy Spirit which the function is to totally settle us into the truth about God. And I think this is what is being described here in Revelation. Uh, they were told not to harm the grass or the trees or any other plant. They could harm only the people who did not have the mark of God's seal on their foreheads. To be settled into the mind about something, to be sealed about something. And it's such a big topic here. I'll just put one verse, but it is the Holy Spirit that does the sealing. And you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation. You believed in Christ and God put his stamp, his seal of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. Okay, by bringing to us on a day-by-day -day basis the truth about God, we become closer and closer to the reality of who God is. We eventually receive this stamp or seal. We become settled. Nothing's going to change our mind 
about the picture of God. And again, I know all of you here are not uh, Adventists, but just from a uh, historical perspective, I thought uh, just to have here a description of something that was written well, well over 100 years ago about this seal. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, what is that? It's not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth both intellectually and spiritually, so that cannot be moved. I agree, based on all of this that we've been through, been through, that this is true. It is to be settled into the truth about what God is like. And just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. And that's what's described in Revelation. So how does all this relate to the temple? I think it relates very much. And so many verses here, surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. Okay, we've made this too much about a health message. All right, we are to be filled with oil, that's true, but it's not uh, cholesterol. It is the uh, oil of truth about God. That is the oil that should fill us, the church, you know, all of Christianity, uh, so that we are a great light. This is the restoration or the cleansing of the temple. For God's temple is holy and you yourselves are his temple. And I think when God does have a people who are so convinced and settled, um, I can't imagine that that is the light of the good news, I think, which goes throughout the whole world when there are people who can articulate and explain and live it out in their own lives. God is like this and God is not like that. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that each one of us may, day by day, we're all so busy, of course, but that this wind, this truth, which your Holy Spirit brings, that it may come to us in many ways. And we know that as we spend more time with you, as we read, as we pray, we think about you, that we'll, we will be filled more and more with your Spirit. And in that process, become more and more like Jesus and reflect you to others. Amen.